0: We say things like, maybe later, perhaps another time, or I'll see you tomorrow, but for some of us, there won't be a tomorrow. Listen as your worst nightmares come to life. These nightmares have become someone's reality. My name is Justin Crowley, and this is The Murder Project. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of The Murder Project. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the case of Brian Deneke. Now, Brian is a person that has been talked about a lot in different movies and shows and true crime and anything you can think of, really, because this is a case that kind of went nationwide and worldwide, for that matter. This is a story about what most people describe it is punks versus jocks. Now I know one of the things that kind of is off putting to this to me is that everything in this whole entire thing is labeled as one thing or another. And I think it always puts people on one side or the other. And I think what we need to do is we need to look at it from a point of view where it's just two groups of people that didn't get along with each other and and why those things might have happened. Now, I know that for, for convenience, it's easy for us to say punks versus jocks, so I will refer to that a few times just to kind of separate the different groups of people so we don't get confused, but really I think it's just two different types of people that kind of collided, and it turned out really, really bad. So strap in, ladies and gentlemen, because episode 27 starts right now. Brian Theodore Denneke was born on March 9th, 1978 and he was born actually in Wichita, Kansas. Now most of this, well all of this story really takes place in Amarillo, Texas, but he didn't move to Amarillo until he was around three years old and he had a brother named Michael uh, Denneke, which went by Mike. That was his older brother and then he lived here with his mom and dad in Amarillo and what they said about Brian in the beginning is that he was into dance and boy scouts and all of these things kind of when he was in elementary school but as he started to get older and with some of the influence of his brother Mike he started getting into what was referred as the punk scene so this is in the 90s you know let's just say for the sake of, of when he kind of got into it the early 90s and you know back then I know me for me personally punk rock music and grunge music and things like that they were really in kind of high demand you know I think everybody back in the 90s you know knew who Nirvana and several other groups were and, and I know we don't need a, a, a history lesson in music but we all kind of I, I think everybody kind of floated in some of those areas whether we like to admit it or not and I will fully say that when I was younger and I heard a lot of Nirvana's music and Pearl Jam and a bunch of different other stuff I loved it it was great but and I still listen to a lot of that stuff to this day Um, I didn't really get like deep into a lot of the punk music and things like that but I had a lot of friends that did and that was one of the good things about kind of growing up in a smaller town in a smaller area which I'll get into some of that here in just a second but when Brian got into high school and he kind of submerged himself in this punk scene he got a lot of backlash from a lot of different people in his own community because in the area that we live in and that Brian lived in Amarillo it's kind of a more conservative area and it's not really accepting the city I guess majority of the people weren't really accepting of this kind of lifestyle that Brian and all of his friends led and the reason I say it like that is because I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions between what people look like And what we think about them because of the way that they look based off what their actual personality is or how they are actually as a person. And like I said, I have friends that were in this group and that are still in this type of group to this day. They may not dress the way that the average person dresses. They may not look the way the average person looks. But deep down inside, I know from several guys that I hang out with that are still kind of in this setting, They are awesome guys, they are fun loving, and they are really quality friends to have. And so I think we'd be putting ourselves in a box if we kind of isolate ourselves away from different things, but to each their own. So while Brian was in high school, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but when Brian was in high school, he, because he was a part of this punk scene, he would get beat up a lot. And people would try to beat him up or he, be, he would get into a lot of fights based off of his appearance, based off of the way that he looked and dressed and acted. And so a lot of times people would see him and they would say, well, he looks a certain way and he would get picked on and he would get bullied and he would get beat up. Now, also, we have to remember that this is high school and we've talked about in several cases before this that high school can be a very rough place. I don't think that it means that any of this is okay. I'm just saying that it can be hard when you're in that junior high and high school age and everybody's kind of coming about and trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do. So Brian was actually nicknamed by some people fist magnet because he seemed to always get into fights and get beat up or, or whatever. And so some people nicknamed him Fist Magnet, but I also think it's important to point out what his other nickname was, which was Sunshine. Because the people in the groups that would kind of bully him would call him the Fist Magnet. And then people that actually hung out with him and knew his personality and the way that he was called him Sunshine. And so you have two totally opposite nicknames for the same person. And that's why I think it's hard it's it it would be a disservice to say that we would know something about someone based off of the way that they look. And so Brian would eventually, because of the torment that he received while he was at school, and I know that there are some people that would say that he probably gave some back too and maybe some of the things that happened to him were something that he deserved, whatever the case. But he ended up having to drop out of school and he got his GED when he was 17 years old because of kind of everything that was going on in the situation. So after Brian dropped out of school and got his GED, he and his girlfriend decided that they wanted to kind of go explore around the East Coast and see what else life had to offer outside of Amarillo. And in some of the research that I did... It is said a few times that Amarillo is kind of this small panhandle Texas town and there's not a whole lot going on and, you know, the kids are all bored and they don't have anything to do and this is kind of why they're reverting back to some of this and that, but Amarillo is not really a small town. I mean, there's 200,000 people that are here and I think there's still even 160,000 in the area in 1997 when all of this took place. small town is where I came from and... There is literally, when they say, well, the kids are bored, it, it, we would have killed for something to do in the town that I'm from. And and what I'm saying by that is that the, the, there was literally nothing to do in the town that I'm from. There was a convenience store, and that was it. There was nothing else in the town. So when they say, like, oh, the kids were bored in this town. They didn't have anything to do. Well, just, they had a whole lot more to do than we did. So it's kind of situational, I guess. But... I'm telling you, the town that I grew up in was was literally small. There was nothing there. There was nothing to do. There was nothing that you could do. So we all just kind of hung out wherever, and everybody got along pretty well, I guess. And uh, it was kind of, it was really inclusive because there wasn't a whole lot of people that were there. So, I mean, if you wanted to make, quote, a crowd, then you kind of had to have everybody. So Brian left Amarillo and went and traveled around the East Coast. All the way up to I think New York and and for about four months he was kind of doing odd jobs and panhandling and and you know asking for money and and washing trucks and doing a bunch of other different things to kind of get money as he was traveling around but after about four months he decided to go ahead and come back to Amarillo and when he got back he met up with his buddies and kind of fell back into his old routine I guess you could say. Now, one of the things that Brian was into was music and arts and and things like that. And so he would hang out at a local uh, club type area that was kind of a little bit run down, but they would try to get bands there and they would do different things. and, And that was kind of one of the places where him and the other quote unquote punk kids could hang out and not feel like they were being threatened by anybody. It was kind of like their safe place that they could go. They could express themselves. They could listen to music, have bands in there, have artwork in there, have a bunch of different things that they wanted to do with the group of people that they hung out with. And that made them feel really comfortable and good, as anybody would. Anybody wants to feel that comfort in the in the place that they're hanging out with. And a lot of times when these guys went out, they would get picked on and bullied by people and get beer bottles thrown at them in in such a way that a lot of the people that Brian hung around with had to basically get a pack together where they said, like, Hey, we have to make sure that when we're out in public, we're in numbers. You know, it can't just be you by yourself. If you're out walking about, then you need to make sure you have a friend with you. And, and that way, if something happens, at least you got someone there that can help protect you or you can help protect them. And this was a rule, I think with the women that were in their group as well, because they would be picked on and bullied as, as well as the men. And they would have people jump out of their cars, throw beer bottles at them, or act like they were going to run over them while they were on their skateboards or whatever the situation is, and, and to the point that they had to kind of make a agreement that nobody would travel alone. And I think that's kind of—I mean, I think that, that living in that, that way is kind of sad because you you're always having to look over your shoulder. And I know that you can say— that some of these kids because i've i've talked to people because this happened in amarillo i've had the opportunity to talk to people from both sides of this story and even to this day now there are still people that are kind of sided up on what they think or feel happened in this situation that they say well you can't point at the you can't point at the punk kids and say that they were innocent in this whole situation and that, that they didn't do anything and that they were, you know, anti-establishment and anti-rule and anti-this and anti-that. And they caused a lot of problems and they didn't, uh, you know, try to make an effort to fit in with the people they were hanging out with. And then, which you can't, I can't say that they had to make that effort. And then you would have some people saying, no, these, the jock crowd was literally tormenting them all of the time and it can go in either way and so th- this is one of those scenarios where even still to this day you have one side pointing the finger at the other side but that's not really what we do here what we want to do is we want to look at the facts of the case what is it that actually happened that caused this huge breakdown between two different groups of people now, at the Murder Project, we talk about facts, theories, you know, anything kind of in between, but what we always try to do at the end of each episode is kind of give you our take on what we really feel like was the, the main issues and the main breakdowns that happened because of such things, and we'll do that on this one, too. So, getting back into the details of this story. Brian, after he kind of came back to Amarillo and was kind of doing his own thing and hanging out at this place where they, you know, him and his buddies would, you know, perform music and do different things like that. He was also working for uh, somebody in Amarillo. His name was Stanley Marsh Three, and or Stanley Marsh III, but everybody called him Stanley Marsh Three. And he is a local artist and he has a bunch of different art pieces that some people might be familiar with. One of them is the, of course, uh, world famous Cadillac Ranch. And that is just outside of Amarillo, just west of Amarillo on Interstate 40. And it's literally Cadillacs that are buried into the ground. And people come out and take pictures and spray paint them and all kinds of different stuff. really fun. I've done it several times. Uh, If you're passing through Amarillo on I-40 and you see the Cadillac Ranch, stop and check it out because it's really cool. Another one of the things he did is that he would pay kids like Brian to go around and Ask people if they can put art pieces up in their yards, and what these were is they were actual like street signs, kind of, and they had different artworks and sayings and and different things on them. I remember when I moved to Amarillo, I was like, "What in the heck is all of this? What what are these weird signs with all these sayings on them and all this stuff?" And it was literally that it was it was from that it that that uh, from Stanley Marsh paying kids to you know go out to people and ask them if they can put artwork in their yard it's kind of cool I mean it's still it's still up right now to this day and uh, you can drive around Amarillo and you can see them, and and you can look up uh, on the internet and they've got a bunch of pictures of what the sayings are they're they're all kind of uh, different in their own way and uh, it's really cool but Brian actually worked for Stanley and one of his jobs is he would go around in kind of canvas neighborhoods and see if he can put this artwork up and they did thousands of these signs And so, you know, these guys were really out doing that, you know, kind of working that angle and doing this. And I think it was, there's a lot of controversy, I think, if you kind of dig into Stanley Marsh's past and different things. And and just like anything else, people have different things they, they, they say about Stanley Marsh that is bad. And in my personal opinion, I don't know what is real and what is not because I've never looked into it that deep. And so I'm not going to now because I would just literally be talking out of thin air if I did. But one of the things I think that's really cool about this is that he would give kind of underprivileged and kind of outcast kids, these outsiders, he would give them work. He would give them things to do and a way to make money. And I remember also when I first moved here, I saw the alphabet soup car that they had. And it's like literally a suburban that has a whole bunch of letters on it from the alphabet. And it's the alphabet soup car. It's I mean, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it I thought that was really cool. Uh, another really cool thing that they had. And it was just kind of, it was just kind of different. And in and, 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 and my opinion, it was kind of refreshing just, just to kind of get, get away from some of, those, some of those norms. And you'd see these signs and these cars and the Cadillac Ranch. And on I-27, just south of Amarillo, there's these two like half legs that are this pair of legs. It's like half halfway down and you know below the knee and uh people go out there and paint those and i mean it's a huge thing and it's just it's just fun and uh i can dive into to some of that uh, some of the other things on that later but so brian is working for stanley marsh he's kind of got his own side projects going and then what happens is one night uh it's this is in december of 1997 uh, him and some Brian and some of his friends are hanging out at their kind of their kind of hangout spot which is the International House of Pancakes IHOP and it is over on Western Street and if you if you were to look at a map of this area it'd literally be I-40 in Western uh, right next to the IHOP is a place called Blue Sky which is a really good burger joint if you are ever in this area or live in this area please go there they have Really good hamburgers and their chili cheese dogs. Pretty awesome too. But right across the street was Western Plaza. And when I say across street, it's across Western, Western was kind of a a busier road in Amarillo. So I have heard some people say that, oh yeah, they, they jogged across the street or they went across the street. No, this is a, this is, this is a really busy road. And so, but right across the street was Western Plaza and it had a bunch of shops and stuff in there. We also used to have a Graham Central Station in there. So when I moved to Amarillo back in 2004, uh, we used to go up to Graham's that was in that same plaza where all of this went down. The IHOP still there, like everything. They 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 dozed the Western Plaza several years back uh, after everything kind of shut down over there. And uh, now it's uh, a bunch of different other buildings and stuff but that I hop is still right there. And then directly across the street in that parking lot where kind of all this went down, all this stuff I'm about to talking, I'm about to talk about went down. It's still all right there. So on December 6th of 1997, there were some of the guys that were in the punk crowd and I'm not sure if Brian was actually there that night. I don't think he was, but there was another gentleman there. His name was John King. And he was in the same group of people with these guys. And there was another gentleman there named Chris Oles, And they were trying to leave the IHOP or something similar to that. But they got into an argument with the jocks. And there was kind of a, a little scuffle that happened inside the restaurant. And then they told them to go outside. And then once they got outside, John King ended up busting... guys windshield and this guy his name was Dustin camp now it's taken me quite a bit of time to get to Dustin camp which is one of the other main players in this whole thing but I kind of wanted to differentiate the two sides before we kind of started mixing everything together so other than the broken windshield everybody kind of everything about this was not that exciting and everybody went their different their separate ways one thing that I think we need to bring up in this is that a lot of the guys that were in the punk crowd and the girls, they had stated that they would carry different things on them as kind of a self-protection measure. You know, some of it, some people stated that Brian always usually had like a large chain with a padlock on it. And uh, some of the other people may have carried small knives, pepper spray, different stuff like that. And this would later be pointed out as something that was a negative on them because it seemed like uh, people would say that they were always ready to get in trouble, whereas when I look at it and you look at the fact that a lot of people state that these kids were beaten up all the time, I would say it was more for protection than to actually cause destruction. And one of the things that I noticed in this when I did a lot of research looking into different different things that I never saw anything that said that these kids from the punk side were going and, you know, targeting the jocks, that they were the ones that were really stirring up a lot of trouble and trying to fight them all the time and, and, and everything like that. It's always seen to be coming from the other side that the punk kids were trying to, you know, keep to themselves, stay in their own little group. And it was the jock side that was always trying to Cause problems and trouble with them, and so, like I said, I wasn't around when this happened, uh, and and I'm just I'm just telling you what I found through my research, and I think I'm being a little bit more cautious with this just because it happened in the same city that I live at. But uh, Dustin Camp was someone that he was on. He was a football player. He played for Tascosa High School, and he was. Not one of the quote-unquote rich kids who lived in the area. He was kind of middle class. He had a 1983 Cadillac that he drove around, and it stated that sometimes kids made fun of him for driving that Cadillac. But I think that was his way of trying to get in with the more wealthy, more popular kids at his school. He really tried tried hard in football because he wanted to be on the varsity squad with everybody. Like that was his identity that's where he he found his purpose at this time and you know this this is one of those things where he would have this loyalty towards these kids that later on get him in trouble and it may not be necessarily because someone asked him to do something he didn't want to do but because he assumed that he might need to do something for the group that could kind of put him up this 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 next level this next tier and it's hard for me to say if that was his motivation but we'll find out and you can decide for yourself so Dustin and his kind of group of kids that he hung that that he hangs out with is obviously against the group that I was talking about previous this is how all this kind of comes together this is how your your jocks and your punks kind of end up meeting up together in a face-off the next weekend after this incident at the IHOP happened where the windshield of Dustin's car is smashed so that happened on a Saturday night the next Friday night which was December 12th Dustin and his companions that he's hanging out with they all go over to that Western Plaza shopping center and this is around uh, 11 p.m. And there had been some buzz about, you know, some things that were happening and people talking about there could be a fight. And one of the things that I forgot to mention until I started talking about this was the weekend before that, when all this this stuff went down, is that when this fight occurred, I I, I mentioned that it kind of went off without anything kind of remarkable happening. But that's not actually true. Because in that incident, there were witnesses there that said that after Dustin's windshield was smashed he tried to run over some of the punk kids that were at the the IHOP or at that in that parking lot and that it kind of it kind of swept around town and uh the jocks were saying no that never really happened and then the punk crowd was saying no that did happen and that this guy Dustin had tried to run us over with his car and so now we've got like this this meeting where everything's got to kind of you know, I guess there was some rumors around town where they were talking about kids were going to fight each other now because of all this things, all the things that went down. And so some of these kids are in high school. Some of them aren't like Dustin's 19. He's, or I'm, I'm sorry, Brian's 19. He's already dropped out of high school, got his GED, and he's still kind of hanging around with some, with some of these people. And uh, some of these kids are in high school. So When everybody meets over at the IHOP, I guess there's a confrontation inside the IHOP again or something happens. And they are told to leave the restaurant, so they go across the street. And this is when the kind of fight breaks out. And from what I understand, there is some people that say that the jocks were over in the Western Plateau or Western Plaza parking lot minding their business and the punk kids came over there and started causing problems between them. But then if you look at the eyewitness account of all of this, they say that it was basically five five guys, four girls on the punk side, and then there was 40 to 50 on the jock side. And it would be safe to assume that a good portion of these people might have been spectators, You might have some football players and then friends of those people, girlfriends, boyfriends, all of these different people that are kind of coming over there to see if anything's happening. Because this is one of those things, if you'll remember from when you were a kid, if that ever happened or if you had any areas that you can go to where kids would get into fights. And it would be like one of those things where you're like, hey, did you hear that so-and-so is going to fight so-and-so? yeah, it's going to happen over here. And then everybody would show up and then half the time, nothing would happen. And it would have been nice if that would have been the case here, but uh, that's not what happened. So basically what happens is, is that there are some words exchanged between the two groups. And then the punk kids get jumped by a whole lot of people. And there was some witness state statements saying, you know, five, five ten 10 guys may be on one guy, you know, and it was just kind of crazy. And, it was happening really fast, and, and it was hard to see what was going on because it you know, it was it was just a it was a big fight and it was kind of wild, but the witnesses say that Brian had probably at least ten to fifteen guys that were on him specifically, and they were beating him up, punching him, kicking him, and he eventually went into the fetal position on the ground, and was kind of taking his licks and going on with it, but then you had Dustin Camp, who from what I understand, maybe wasn't initially in the fight, but he was kind of lingering, loitering around, I guess. But uh, he is in his car. He's back in his Cadillac. And he makes... He kind of drives through the middle of the parking lot, makes a pass, actually hits Chris Oles, who was with the punk crowd, uh, clips him with the car, uh, doesn't severely injure him if my recollection is clear on that but then Dustin gets to the end of the parking lot turns around there's two people in Dustin's car one of their names is Rob the other one's name is Elise and one of them tries to get out of the car but then Dustin kind of floors it and everybody's kind of along for the ride he goes back through the parking lot at this time Brian is trying to defend himself off of another guy or two and I guess the big, the majority of the crowd had kind of dispersed off of Brian and when Dustin starts driving towards him the jock kid peels off and Brian is left kind of standing there by himself and then if you go out of that parking lot there is a median in the middle of the road and right, right after that median is the IHOP so that's kind of how it kind of how this parking lot is is laid out in reference to the street and then the other building. So Brian runs through the parking lot into the street and he's over by the median. Dustin kind of jumps that curb, goes down and just before he gets to the median, he runs over Brian. And it is said that when, when Dustin hits Brian with his Cadillac, his back slaps the hood of the car and at the same time with the motion of the vehicle in the road brian is sucked underneath the car and after he goes over this median the car kind of jumps off of what people described as kind of jumps off of brian's body and you could hear that crushing sound and you know everybody knew that brian had just got run over and dustin drives off he leaves the area Uh, from what some of the witnesses there say, that the jock crowd cheered after Brian was run over, and they were kind of seen celebrating that horrible event that just took place, and then people kind of started dispersing from the area and leaving. And Brian's brother, Mike, went over, and Chris Oles and all those guys were all there still when all this happened, but basically they had to watch... Brian die in his brother Mike's arms and they said that he was still conscious for a few minutes after this incident happened and that he was trying to speak and say something but they couldn't make out what he was trying to say and he ended up passing away right there in front of everybody and it said that some of his injuries from this included his front teeth were broken out Uh, The left side of his face was gashed, his skull was crushed, his left shoulder had been torn from the socket, and his skull, spine, and pelvis, ribs, everything crushed, and there was a part of his spine that was severed, I, I believe as well, and so all of this would have been, he wouldn't have made it from that. Uh, these, these, all of these, a lot of these injuries, especially with the spine and the skull and all the trauma that he had, these were fatal injuries. And the fact that he was still alive at the time that his friends showed up and his and his brother would probably just be that last bits of adrenaline that are surging through his body, and then he passed away soon after. And this kind of doesn't, just doesn't conclude everything that happened in the, in this story because. Now we have a kid who has killed another kid, and it looks to be like it is a homicide. It's murder. And a lot of people agree with that, including the Emerald Police Department, because if you remember me talking about Rob and Elise that were in the car, or Elsie, I was saying Elise, it is, it is Elsie. Uh, if, you, if you remember Rob and Elsie that were in the car, uh, they went home and Dustin dropped them off at their house and he told them that they shouldn't say anything, and he would, when the police came looking for him, he would tell them that he was in the car by himself. There was no need for them to get wrapped up in all of it, that he would take the blame by himself. The other two kids went home, and they did not make it long before they ended up telling their parents what happened. I would say that if this incident happened around 11 p.m., as the story states, that sometime during... The early morning hours, they told their parents about what happened, and their parents took them to the police station to make a statement. And then around 6 a.m., the police showed up at Dustin's house to arrest him for the murder of Brian Dinicky Now, when they arrested Brian for the murder, they also impounded his car and they got a lot of biological evidence from his vehicle uh, blood stains and tissue, or blood splatter and tissue on the un- undercarriage of the vehicle. And a lot of different things that kind of tied him into this. And originally, Dustin told the police that it was an accident, that he was driving through the, the, the parking lot, and his intentions weren't to hurt anybody, but Brian slipped on some snow that was in the parking lot, and he accidentally ran him over, which no one believed, including the police. Uh, one of the police detectives that was assigned to the case uh, stated that he, he believed that it was... A homicide. That the actions of Dustin were intentional, and that he knew what he was doing when all of this took place. So now you have to factor in the fact that all of these kids had been drinking, and the stories are going to start going one way and the other, and stories are flying around anyways. And Dustin is arrested. It takes a year and a half for the case to go to trial, and in the meantime. Dustin is allowed to graduate from high school and walk the stage, and when he walked the stage, he was met with cheers and applause from the people in the audience, which I think is kind of crazy, but um, he was allowed to graduate, and then after graduation, he went to trial. When he got to trial, uh, his attorney, kind of spun a narrative that he was... It wasn't that Brian had slipped on the snow and then fell and he got ran over. It was that uh, Dustin was defending one of his friends. He was trying to save his life because Brian was beating him up and he was in fear of his friend's life. And he had to help his friend and do all this stuff. And it's one of those things where in this whole trial... The, the story itself seems like it's a little bit shoddy, like there's a little bit of holes in this whole thing. But one of the things that Dustin's attorney did was the whole time he kind of painted this picture about Brian, about how bad of a kid he was and how evil he was, and that a lot of the things that happened to him were kind of his own fault. And that He was, you know, interested in destruction and and, and tearing things up and graffitiing and doing a whole bunch of different things. He was trying to paint him in this picture of, look at this guy and tell me that he might not have had this coming. And he really victim blamed Brian a lot in every single scenario that he could. And I'm sure it was hard for them to look at this whole scenario and think... You know, or for the people that loved Brian to sit in that courtroom and listen to this man say all the terrible things that he said about him. And that is one of the things that I'll, I'll bring up in the next episode with Mike, because it's, it definitely, well, we need some back and forth on that one. But after the whole trial's over, the jury deliberates and they decide that Dustin is not going to be convicted of murder that they will convict him of a lesser included offense of manslaughter. And so for this manslaughter, I believe, which was classified as a second-degree felony, he faced anywhere from 2 to 20 years in prison. And because Dustin had no criminal record, they were given the opportunity to give him probation. And that is exactly what they did. Dustin was sentenced to 10 years probation for the murder of Brian Dennecke. And this was one of those things where I think in some circles it was celebrated and other circles, people could not believe that that actually happened. And for a, a case like this, I, it's kind of hard for me to get there as well. I don't, I don't see how probation was, uh, was correct for this, but Hey, you know, Uh, He also received a $10,000 fine for his crime, but because of good behavior, that $10,000 fine was waived. And so he had to pay nothing and he didn't even have to go to jail. So it looks like uh, everybody in the jury refused to comment after the trial, but definitely everybody in this whole situation was uh, uh, deeply affected by this verdict one way or the other. In June of 2001, there is a little bit of, kind of redemption, I guess, in a way, some silver lining here. Uh, in June of 2001, uh, Dustin was arrested for underage drinking and providing alcohol to minors, and there was a there was a situation where Dustin's father tried to cover for his cover up for his son, so he didn't get that probation violation, and he he, he got arrested for making a false statement, but he was only a, he was only sentenced to 60 days of deferred adjudicated probation and given a $100 fine. Dustin was actually when when he got hit with that probation violation, they actually sentenced him to 8 years in prison for violating his probation. Now, one of the things that we need to talk about related to that is when Dustin was given that deferred probation. What that means is is that if he violates that probation they can kind of wipe the slate clean as far as the sentencing goes and then they can sentence him to jail time none of the time that he did before this would count towards that so he was on probation for i think three years uh, without any any issues but when he went to serve his jail time you're basically starting over at zero plus now the deferred adjudication is off the table so He is not only going to prison, but now the conviction for the manslaughter will go on his permanent record. So if he would have completed the probation under deferred adjudication, the charge would have been dropped. Or not dropped, but dismissed due to the probation. But since he did not complete that probation, he was basically convicted of that crime, sentenced to jail, and that goes on his record. He was... uh, he was released in 2006. It looks like, so he served I don't know five years, six years, which is it's pretty common. Based off of that, I mean, I, I would I would expect that he would have actually got out sooner, but uh, he served about five or six years, and then he was on uh, he was paroled, and then he was on super supervised released uh, release until his sentence expired in 2009. And so this is this has been one of those cases where I apologize if I jumped around from place to place. But there's so much information that that was happening this one in, in this case. And there's so much that I think we have to talk about in the debrief. And so I was trying to keep I was trying to give you the gist of the story without giving too much of it away before Mike and I had a chance to sit down and really cover that and go through it. And, uh, because there's a lot of information in here and I'm, I'm telling you, this is, we haven't even covered, I haven't even covered half of it probably, uh, with the amount of time that I've spent on this just because it's very controversial, very complex deal. And it's, you know, like I said, you're putting two different people, two different types of people against each other. And so the speculation and the, you know, joining sides and and trying to look at it from both ways, kind of, man, it it can get you, it can get you wrapped up in a lot of different areas, and it's it's kind of hard for me to explain the dynamics of both of these groups in such a short episode, and I may have to um, I may have to adjust for that in future episodes when we get into something that's this kind of involved. Let me know what you think. It may it may be one of those things where we just start off with the debrief episode and we have the part one and the part two, but they're both Mike and I sitting down and going through all this because there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack in this case, like in in so many of the other ones, and so it's hard for me to decide what to select and put into this one. And it it kind of made it to where it's it's going to set it up for for a really good debrief, and and that's where. I think y'all know what's coming. Um, I'm going to leave it there for this episode of the murder project, but I thank you guys for listening and tune in next episode because it may be a longer one and we're going to kind of unpack all this and kind of break it down and talk about it. and, And I think you guys won't be disappointed in that. So thank you guys so much for listening. I will see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the murder project. Our numbers are going up. Our downloads are going up. And we have you guys to thank for that. If you're looking for us on any of the social media platforms, you can find us on Facebook at The Murder Project. If you need to search for us, type in facebook.com slash podcast TMP. If you're looking for us on the Instagrams, we are at The Murder Project. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, we are at The Murder Pod. Also, don't forget to go into whatever platform you're listening to this on and hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and hit that five stars. We appreciate it so much. We thank everybody who has already done this. Also, if you're on Facebook and you search for The Murder Project, you can now listen to every episode of The Murder Project on Facebook at our actual site, at the Murder Project. Go on there; it's in the same area where it has photos and all the other stuff. If you look at that tab right above there, scroll over to the side. It says Podcast. Click on that. All the episodes are there. You can listen to them now without having to download any of the episodes or have any sort of platform. All of it's on Facebook now, and so I'll talk about more. I'll talk more about that in the debrief. If you want to send us an email, we have an email. It's contact at themurderproject.com. And we look forward to talking to you guys again. I will see you guys on the debrief episode. But before I go, please remember, head up, eyes up, stay alive.